Hello, everyone. I'm Paul Menzel. And I'm Jim Conlon. And this is New Tricks for Old Dogs. Our podcast features the many ways us older folks howl at the moon, odd news items you don't normally hear about, and conversations with other old dogs who are growing bolder, not older. So if you've got 25 minutes or so, grab a cup of coffee, pull up a chair, and join us. In this episode, the old dogs ramble about the simple humor of the 50s and how it affected our behavior. We look at the new kinds of goodies corporations are buying as giveaways, We say goodbye to master funny man Carl Reiner. We give you tips on how to deal with friends and relatives who want your money. We tell the tale of a fantasy enactment that went just a bit wrong. And we give you the lowdown on how a psychologist cashed in on high-stakes poker. The Old Dog's conversation is with Sherry Adams, a woman who for many years and many ways kept a major metropolitan newspaper humming. Stay with us. Okay, Paul, what is on your mind? In uh, today's episode, we have a piece on the death of Carl Reiner. Yeah. Uh, I'm presuming most of our listeners are familiar with him, his career as a writer, actor, comic. And what what got me thinking, Jim, is that that was our defining years. So I started thinking about, were, were things simpler back then, or were we just stupid? <laughs> I think things were simpler back then. I don't know if I would say stupid so much as perhaps um, uh, less aware of uh, a, a larger reality. For example, the kind of humor that Carl Reiner participated in uh, and the other comedy writers and the comedy shows, like Red Skelton, for example, and Sid Caesar, uh, had a certain simplistic view of America and uh, base their humor on that more simplistic view. But I don't know that that was necessarily stupid, just a a narrower view of the world, maybe. Yeah, certainly in the 50s, I think sitcoms had a traditional dad goes to work, Mm -hmm. dad comes home, honey, I'm home. (laughs) (laughs) So at any rate, the patterns that we saw of what a family should be like were pretty simplistic, yeah. But that was the pattern that was handed to us by television. You knew where it was going. And for some reason, people enjoyed knowing where it was going. If one of the kids messed up, you knew that uh, mom was going to talk to dad and dad was going to make the kid fess up and clean up. That sounds like every Leave it to Beaver episode. <laughs> Leave it to Beaver, yeah. Yeah, and my three sons... <laughs> So anyway, we as as we're growing up in the 50s, that becomes maybe our norm. And is it possible that the kind of ethical behavior we picked up from TV um, was useful in our lives? Absolutely. I think that even if it was simplistic, that there was a certain morality about it. And if you do something wrong, you clean it up. And uh, that kind of guided us and maybe still does today. Maybe we still have that kind of morality among our generation. Yeah, well, I would hope to think so, because it was our generation that went on to uh, protest during the 60s and to uh, define maybe a better way of doing things. I I would like to think so. Yeah, which is kind of a conundrum, really, because you think about everything that happened in the 60s and how our parents were aghast at uh, much of what was going on. And yet, if it's true that we learned a certain moral code 
And we saw through our education, we were obviously getting much better education in the 60s than perhaps we had gotten in the 40s and 50s. We saw things that needed to be fixed. And so we wanted to do something about it. Uh, and even though perhaps our parents thought, well, we're going against the American way, we kind of thought that it was the American way that we were trying to do something about. Right. So we can blame all of our bad conduct in the 60s on 50s television. Is that right? Exactly. That's pretty slick, Jim. Corporate swag has been affected by COVID-19. Instead of giveaways of thumb drives and tote bags, we have entered the age of corporate personal protective equipment. This pod nugget is from the Washington Post for July 2nd, 2020. As some businesses reopen and others try to stay in touch with employees working from home, companies are ordering coronavirus-related corporate swag. Branded sanitizer bottles, clean key tools for pressing elevator buttons, and above all, masks. NASDAQ ordered 1,800 masks with its logo and the phrase NASDAQ Strong for employees returning to the office. The software firm Atlassian ordered gift packages for workers that included a mask with a product logo alongside a chocolate bar, a pen, and other goodies. Well, I guess masks with a company logo have now become approved corporate wear. So when folks return to work at the office, an official company mask will be part of their work wardrobe. So those fun masks with vivid designs, animal faces, and personal statements stay at home, unless they are allowed for casual Fridays. <laughs> Carl Reiner, multifaceted actor, producer, director, and writer of all things funny, is dead at the age of 98. This item is from the New York Times for June 30th, 2020. Mr. Reiner first attracted national attention in 1950 as part of the cast of comic actors on Sid Caesar's Your Show of Shows. He was also one of the writers on that show, which included Neil Simon, Woody Allen, and Mel Brooks. You had to be pretty good to hold your own with that group. No kidding. A decade later, he created The Dick Van Dyke Show one of the most celebrated situation comedies in television history. It was based loosely on his experiences as a writer for Sid Caesar. The show ran on CBS from 1961 to 1966 and won a total of 15 Emmys for its cast and crew. Five of those awards went to Reiner as writer and producer. In 1960, he teamed with Mel Brooks on the first of five 2,000-year-old man comedy albums. Mr. Brooks was the star of the largely improvised routines, reflecting on all the famous people he had known during his long life. But it was Reiner's skill as a straight man that kept Mel Brooks more or less on track. The albums were a huge success and are still prized today by students of comedy. Carl Reiner had already appeared in a number of Hollywood movies by the time he and his family moved to Beverly Hills from New York in the late 1960s, and he would continue to show up on screen occasionally. But for the next three decades, most of his work in Hollywood was done behind the scenes as a director. Mr. Reiner's first major box office success was Oh God! in 1977, starring George Burns. Two years later, he teamed with Steve Martin for a series of four movies for what proved to be a mutually rewarding collaboration. He quit directing in his 70s, but continued acting well into his 90s. Carl Reiner did it all, and at a high level. 
His contributions have always been recognized by his peers, and in 2000, the Kennedy Center awarded him the Mark Twain Prize for American Humor. He was a modest man with a prodigious talent. Gonna miss him. As the coronavirus continues to impact people financially, you may be approached by family or friends for a loan. It's a good idea to consider your limits before you are asked. This pod nugget is from the New York Times for June 24th, 2020. Lending money can be a minefield. Do you choose one child over another, or a brother over a sister, or a distant friend over a close one? By thinking about your limits beforehand, you can avoid having to make a spontaneous decision that could jeopardize your own finances. A conversation asking for money is very emotional. It's difficult for the person asking, and it's difficult for the person being asked. The person asking may want an immediate response. However, tell them that you need a day or two to respond. You need to consider their request in light of the impact on your own finances. You may want to discuss with your partner or consult your financial advisor about your limits financially. When you reconnect with the person asking, hold firm to your limits and have a frank discussion about how they will repay the loan. Have them send you an email with the terms of repayment that are acceptable. And finally, enter into the loan with the realization that it may not get paid back, as is sometimes the case with loans to family. Oh, and I might add, don't bring up the unpaid loan at family occasions like Thanksgiving or funerals, including your own. Is Is that okay? No, weddings are fine. Oh. If you're going to hire two guys to come over and act out a fantasy, for gosh sakes, make sure you give them the correct address. This item is from Sky News for May 28, 2020. Two guys in Australia were offered $5,000 to show up at a house and act out a sexual fantasy. (laughs) Without getting graphic, suffice it to say that the fantasy involved fear, not actual harm. Unfortunately, there were two problems. The instructions for the enactors were a little vague, perhaps allowing for too much creativity, and the address was not the current address of the person who paid for the event. So our two hired hands show up with machetes at the (laughs) wrong address. Machetes were not part of the original fantasy. They thought adding the big knives would be a way to ratchet up the fear level. I mean, who wouldn't? The homeowner woke up to discover two people in his bedroom holding machetes and trying to look sinister. He finally convinced the duo that they were at the wrong address. So they left the house after shaking hands with the victim and saying, Sorry, mate. After they departed, the homeowner called the police and they were arrested a short time later. Wow. Now, there are some <laughs> questions that remain unanswered. Yeah. What were the two enactors charged with? Attempted fantasy? For 5000 bucks, shouldn't you expect better and smarter enactors? And how long before this incident becomes a movie with Adam Sandler? All good questions that need answers. <laughs> When a psychologist has a run of bad luck, what do you do? While psychologist Maria Konnikova became a high-stakes poker player, (laughs) this item is from a book review that appeared in the Washington Post for July 3rd, 2020. The bad luck involved Maria Konnikova's family. In 2015, her mother lost her job, her husband's startup failed, her grandmother had a fatal accident, and Maria herself developed an autoimmune disease. 
This string of unfortunate events reinforced her interest in chance and control. She set a goal of participating in the World Series of Poker, even though she had never played poker in her life. Konnikova's quest for poker success is not as unlikely as it may seem. As a doctoral candidate at Columbia, she studied decision-making, specifically the interplay of luck and skill in making important life choices. She was inspired by the work of mathematician John Van Neumann, the father of game theory, whose work was in part based on poker. To help her in her quest, she persuaded poker pro Eric Seidel to become her mentor. Under his guidance, she learned about the culture of professional gambling. As the song goes, you gotta know when to hold them and know when to fold them. Eric helped her understand how to pay attention when surrounded by distractions and to keep her emotions out of her card-playing choices. Konnikova captured this year-long journey in a new book titled The Biggest Bluff, How I Learned to Pay Attention, Master Myself, and Win. This is much more than a guide to successful poker playing. She draws on her background in psychology to show the cognitive biases that hinder sound decisions. The book is peppered with quotations and studies that illuminate the skills of successful poker players. We confess we haven't read the book yet, but we were inspired by the story of an academic who plunged into the non-academic world of professional poker. She was definitely howling at the moon, and yes, she did win at poker between two hundred dollars and $300,000 and gained a great deal of personal insight along the way. And we wonder if she is still a practicing psychologist (laughs) or whether she's making a living at poker. Sherry Adams was in some ways the heartbeat of a major metropolitan newspaper. As the librarian for the Houston Chronicle, she was in charge of gathering news clippings, providing research, and she was also a first-hand witness to many major events. In this conversation, Sherry talks about her many years of service at the Chronicle. Well, Sherry, we believe our listeners have never been uh, privy to what goes on in a newspaper. And you were stuck in the heart of the operation. Do you want to explain what your job was with the Houston Chronicle? Uh, I started in 1974 as the assistant librarian and was promoted to librarian in 78. We provided research to the reporters. We filed the clippings into clipping files and into photo files. We got the AP photos and filed those as well as photos from our own photographers. We handled the photo sales of staff taken photographers, did the copyright permissions for the people who wanted to reuse Chronicle material. We kept lists of things like important dates, and in 1985, we did a transition from clipping files and photo files to electronic clips, used electronic databases like LexisNexis for our research for our staff. And our main thing, though, was research for the reporters. So how did you keep track of those clippings? Was there miles and miles of files with the clippings? We had clipping files, and we put them into a Diebold rotary machine, and we would clip a story under as many different subjects as required. If something was about the 
uh, Houston Grand Opera, it would go in that file. We had the byline files for the reporters. And then as files got too big, we would microfiche them. And then the microfiche, of course, would fit into much less space than the clippings themselves. And how did you catalog them? By subject and by name. We had two separate files. One was subjects, and then we had names of people who were in the news. We would actually clip the paper. We would have multiple copies of the paper. I have a person called a marker who would go through and mark where she felt that that story should be filed, all the different places. And then uh, we had what was called a ripper, someone who would then tear out the articles from the multiple copies. And then we had filers who actually filed into those files. Sherry, you have described your job at the Chronicle as probably the best job you could ever have. Um, what are some of the most exciting things that you encountered as the librarian for the Chronicle? Well, I got to do some really rather interesting things. Uh, I did get to attend several national political conventions as a research for the reporters who, who went to the conventions. Uh, in 1990, I helped organize a reference center for the Economic Summit of Industrialized Nations that was held here in 1990. We had it staffed by about 40 local volunteer librarians who used computer databases and other resources to answer the reference questions from those 4,000 journalists who came. And all those librarians had to get a security clearance. I was uh, on the Chronicles Great Grown Up Spelling Bee team to benefit the Houston Reed Commission. And I got to go uh, cover a story one day, which was the annual story that we did on the firefighters' calendar. I got picked to be one to go vote for which fire people would go on the calendar. So you're a good speller, hey? <laughs> Can you spell chrysanthemum for me? C-H-R-Y-S-A-N-T-H-E-M-U-M. <laughs> I don't know. I got to trust you on that one. I, I just looked it up. She's right. Ah, okay. Uh, you probably had to come up against a deadline quite a few times, right? Would you all scramble? Oh, yes. Would you scramble to get the information you needed? Yes. Uh, when it was a deadline issue, then, then we definitely uh, did a lot of scrambling. When I first started with an afternoon paper, so you would do research in the morning, see your work in the paper that afternoon in print. There were, of course, big stories that, that required uh, us to really move. Uh, September 11 was, was one of those, of course. The reporters were on deadline, so we were too. Sherry, tell me, when you switched over to computers, did you think that was a challenge, or were you grateful for having them? It was a big thing, <laughs> a real big thing. Uh, when I was getting my master's in library science, one course was offered in uh, computers in libraries. I got my degree in 74. And I didn't take it because I wasn't going to have anything to do with computers. 
but unfortunately, uh, life caught up with me. I was very lucky. I belonged to the Special Libraries Association uh, News Division and would go to their conference every year. And there was a lot of information about the changeover to computerized ways of doing things. A lot of sessions on that within the news division to keep us up to date on what was going on. So when the Chronicle decided in 85 to go to an electronic filing system, uh, luckily I had learned enough to pull that off. Sherry, you've been kind of a witness to news uh, over this amount of time. Do you feel that there's been a change in the character of the news? I'm not talking necessarily about the content, but let's say the way the news is reported. If you're talking about newspapers, which was my specialty. Yes. No, the way it's been reported, I think that most newspapers are continuing to put out a newspaper that is as fair and as broad as they can make it. There, I'm sure, are exceptions, but I think that that's just based in the DNA of, of most People who run newspapers. Say, do you uh, read a newspaper every day? <laughs> yes. And what? I read what? My Chronicle every single day. Uh, I also have uh, online subscriptions to the Washington Post and the New York Times. A friend passes along the Wall Street Journal. Uh, I'm very much a news junkie. And this is electronic uh, copies, or are you uh, the old-fashioned kind with, you like getting print on your fingers? I like getting print on my fingers. I like being able to sit down with a cup of tea and my newspaper in the morning and just go through it and read all the stuff that maybe I heard something about on the news last night, but the newspaper gives me the full story. My husband is also a newsman. Uh, he was a, a newsman for 45 years. So the newspapers around here get really, really read. <laughs> All right. Which section do you go to first? I start with the, the lifestyle section. We call it Star in the Chronicle. Just because I like to start off my day with a little bit of upness, I start with the funnies. You know, I'm I'm with you. I like to back into the headlines. I don't like to go there first thing. Right. I just I want to start off my day with something a little lighter, and then the next section I pick up is section A, and uh, start reading the the real news. Sherry, if you could open the paper tomorrow morning, what is the best news you'd like to read? The best news I would like to read right now would be a vaccine of some sort. Whatever would work best to get this coronavirus pandemic under control worldwide. Yeah, I agree with you there. I agree too, Sherry. We have time for one more question. We know that you and your husband recently moved from your home to a retirement community. How do you think that's worked out for you? It has worked out great. 
We feel so lucky to have moved here. We both have become sort of couch potatoes after we retired. Since we moved here, it's been nonstop. It has kept us up and moving, active and engaged with other people and has kept us, I think, a lot younger than we would be had we stayed in our house. Like what you've been hearing? How about sharing the joy with your friends? We can always use more listeners. All our episodes are available on our website, www.olddogspodcast.com. And there are a lot more episodes on the way, so stay tuned and keep howling at the moon.